Julius Caesar, Part Four of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Julius Caesar, Part Four, Paragraphs fifty six to seventy nine. He has likewise left commentaries of his own actions both in the war in Gaul and in the civil war with Pompey. For the author of the Alexandrian, African, and Spanish wars is not known with any certainty. Some think they are the production of Oppius, and some of Hirtius, the latter of whom composed the last book, which is imperfect, of the Gallic War. Of Caesar's commentaries, Cicero in his Brutus speaks thus. He wrote his commentaries in a manner deserving of great approbation. They are plain, precise, and elegant, without any affectation of rhetorical ornament. In having thus prepared materials for others who might be inclined to write his history, he may perhaps have encouraged some silly creatures to enter upon such a work, who will needs be dressing up his actions in all the extravagance of bombast. But he has discouraged wise men from ever attempting the subject. Hirtius delivers his opinion of these commentaries in the following terms. So great is the approbation with which they are universally perused, that, instead of rousing, he seems to have precluded the efforts of any future historian. Yet, with respect to this work, we have more reason to admire him than others, for they only know how well and correctly he has written, but we know likewise how easily and quickly he did it. Polio Asinius thinks that they were not drawn up with much care, or with a due regard to truth, for he insinuates that Caesar was too hasty of belief in regard to what was performed by others under his orders, and that he has not given a very faithful account of his own acts, either by design or through defect of memory, expressing at the same time an opinion that Caesar intended a new and more correct edition. He has left behind him likewise two books on analogy, with the same number under the title of Anti-Cato, and a poem entitled The Itinerary. Of these books he composed the first two in his passage over the Alps as he was returning to the army after making his circuit in hither Gaul, the second work about the time of the Battle of Munda, and the last during the four-and-twenty days he employed in his journey from Rome to farther Spain. There are extant some letters of his to the Senate, written in a manner never practised by any before him, for they are distinguished into pages in the form of a memorandum-book, whereas the consuls and commanders till then used constantly in their letters to continue the line quite across the sheet, without any folding or distinction of pages. There are extant likewise some letters from him to Cicero, and others to his friends, 
concerning his domestic affairs, in which, if there was occasion for secrecy, he wrote in ciphers, that is, he used the alphabet in such a manner that not a single word could be made out. The way to decipher those epistles was to substitute the fourth for the first letter, as D for A, and so for the other letters, respectively. Some things likewise pass under his name, said to have been written by him when a boy or a very young man, as the encomium of Hercules, a tragedy entitled Oedipus, and a collection of apothems, all of which Augustus forbade to be published in a short and plain letter to Pompeius Mesa, who was employed by him in the arrangement of his libraries. He was perfect in the use of arms, an accomplished rider, and able to endure fatigue beyond all belief. On a march he used to go at the head of his troops, sometimes on horseback, but oftener on foot, with his head bare in all kinds of weather. He would travel post in a light carriage without baggage at the rate of a hundred miles a day, and if he was stopped by floods in the rivers, he swam across or floated on skins inflated with wind, so that he often anticipated intelligence of his movements. In his expeditions it is difficult to say whether his caution or his daring was most conspicuous. He never marched his army by roads which were exposed to ambuscades without having previously examined the nature of the ground by his scouts, nor did he cross over to Britain before he had carefully examined in person the navigation, the harbours, and the most convenient point of landing in the island. When intelligence was brought to him of the siege of his camp in Germany, he made his way to his troops through the enemy's stations in a Gaulish dress. He crossed the sea from Brundisium and Dyrrachium in the winter through the midst of the enemy's fleets, and the troops, under orders to join him, being slow in their movements, notwithstanding repeated messages to hurry them but to no purpose, he at last went privately and alone aboard a small vessel in the night-time, with his head muffled up. Nor did he make himself known, or suffer the master to put about, although the wind blew strong against them, until they were ready to sink. He was never deterred from any enterprise, nor retarded in the prosecution of it by superstition. When a victim which he was about to offer in sacrifice made its escape, he did not therefore defer his expedition against Scipio and Juba, and happening to fall upon stepping out of the ship, he gave a lucky turn to the omen by exclaiming, I hold thee fast, Africa. To chide the prophecies which were spread abroad that the name of the Scipios was by the decrees of fate fortunate and invincible in that province, he retained in the camp a profligate wretch of the family of the Cornelii, who, on account of his scandalous life, was surnamed Saluito. He not only fought pitched battles, but made sudden attacks when an opportunity offered, often at the end of a march, and sometimes during the most violent storms when nobody could imagine he would stir. 
nor was he ever backward in fighting until towards the end of his life. He then was of opinion that the oftener he had been crowned with success, the less he ought to expose himself to new hazards, and that nothing he could gain by a victory would compensate for what he might lose by a miscarriage. He never defeated the enemy without driving them from their camp and giving them no time to rally their forces. When the issue of a battle was doubtful, he sent away all the horses, and his own first, that having no means of flight, they might be under the greater necessity of standing their ground. He rode a very remarkable horse, with feet almost like those of a man, the hoofs being divided in such a manner as to have some resemblance to toes. This horse he had bred himself, and the soothsayers having interpreted these circumstances into an omen that its owner would be master of the world, he brought him up with particular care, and broke him in himself, as the horse would suffer no one else to mount him. A statue of this horse was afterwards erected by Caesar's order before the temple of Venus Genitrix. He often rallied his troops when they were giving way by his personal efforts, stopping those who fled, keeping others in their ranks, and seizing them by their throat turned them towards the enemy. Although numbers were so terrified that an eagle-bearer thus stopped, made a thrust at him with the spear-head, and another, upon a similar occasion, left the standard in his hand. The following instances of his resolution are equally and even more remarkable. After the Battle of Pharsalia, having sent his troops before him into Asia, as he was passing the straits of the Hellespont in a ferry-boat, he met with Lucius Cassius, one of the opposite party, with ten ships of war, and so far from endeavouring to escape, he went alongside his ship, and calling upon him to surrender, Cassius humbly gave him his submission. At Alexandria, in the attack of a bridge, being forced by a sudden sally of the enemy into a boat, and several others hurrying in with him, he leapt into the sea, and saved himself by swimming to the next ship, which lay at the distance of two hundred paces. Holding up his left hand out of the water, for fear of wetting some papers which he held in it, and pulling his general's cloak after him with his teeth, lest it should fall into the hands of the enemy. He never valued a soldier for his moral conduct or his means, but for his courage only, and treated his troops with a mixture of severity and indulgence, for he did not always keep a strict hand over them, but only when the enemy was near. Then, indeed, he was so strict a disciplinarian that he would give no notice of a march or a battle until the moment of action, in order that the troops might hold themselves in readiness for any sudden movement, and he would frequently draw them out of the camp without any necessity for it, especially in rainy weather and upon holy days. Sometimes giving them orders not to lose sight of him, he would suddenly depart by day or by night, 
and lengthen the marches in order to tire them out, as they followed him at a distance. When at any time his troops were dispirited by reports of the great force of the enemy, he rallied their courage, not by denying the truth of what was said, or by diminishing the facts, but on the contrary, by exaggerating every particular. Accordingly, when his troops were in great alarm at the expected arrival of King Juba, he called them together and said, I have to inform you that in a very few days the king will be here, with ten legions, thirty thousand horse, a hundred thousand light-armed foot, and three hundred elephants. Let none of you therefore presume to make further inquiry or indulge in conjectures, but take my word for what I tell you, which I have from undoubted intelligence. Otherwise I shall put them aboard an old crazy vessel, and leave them exposed to the mercy of the winds, to be transported to some other country. He neither noticed all their transgressions, nor punished them according to strict rule. But for deserters and mutineers he made the most diligent inquiry, and their punishment was most severe. Other delinquencies he would connive at. Sometimes, after a great battle ending in victory, he would grant them a relaxation from all kinds of duty, and leave them to revel at pleasure, being used to boast that his soldiers fought nothing the worse for being well oiled. In his speeches he never addressed them by the title of soldiers, but by the kinder phrase of fellow-soldiers, and kept them in such splendid order that their arms were ornamented with silver and gold, not merely for parade, but to render the soldiers more resolute to save them in battle, and fearful of losing them. He loved his troops to such a degree that when he heard of the defeat of those under Titurius, he neither cut his hair nor shaved his beard until he had revenged it upon the enemy, by which means he engaged their devoted affection and raised their valour to the highest pitch. Upon his entering on the civil war, the centurions of every legion offered, each of them, to maintain a horseman at his own expense, and the whole army agreed to serve gratis without either corn or pay, those amongst them who were rich charging themselves with the maintenance of the poor. No one of them during the whole course of the war deserted to the enemy, and many of those who were made prisoners, though they were offered their lives upon condition of bearing arms against him, refused to accept the terms. They endured want and other hardships, not only when they were besieged themselves, but when they besieged others, to such a degree that Pompey, when blocked up in the neighbourhood of Dyrrachium, upon seeing a sort of bread made of an herb, which they lived upon, said, I have to do with wild beasts, and ordered it immediately to be taken away, because if his troop should see it, their spirit might be broken by perceiving the endurance and determined resolution of the enemy. With what bravery they fought, one instance affords sufficient proof, 
which is that after an unsuccessful engagement at Dyrrachium, they called for punishment, insomuch that their general found it more necessary to comfort than to punish them. In other battles, in different quarters, they defeated with ease immense armies of the enemy, although they were much inferior to them in number. In short, one cohort of the Sixth Legion held out a fort against four legions belonging to Pompey during several hours, being almost every one of them wounded by the vast number of arrows discharged against them, and of which there were found within the ramparts a hundred and thirty thousand. This is no way surprising when we consider the conduct of some individuals amongst them, such as that of Cassius Siva, a centurion, or Gaius Acilius, a common soldier, not to speak of others. Siva, after having an eye struck out, being run through the thigh and the shoulder, and having his shield pierced in an hundred and twenty places, maintained obstinately the guard of the gate of a fort, with the command of which he was entrusted. Acilius, in the sea-fight at Marseilles, having seized a ship of the enemies with his right hand, and that being cut off, in imitation of that memorable instance of resolution in Sinegyrus amongst the Greeks, boarded the enemy's ship, bearing down all before him with the boss of his shield. They never once mutinied during all the ten years of the Gallic War, but were sometimes refractory in the course of the Civil War. However, they always returned quickly to their duty, and that not through the indulgence, but in submission to the authority of their general. For he never yielded to them when they were insubordinate, but constantly resisted their demands. He disbanded the whole Ninth Legion with ignominy at Placentia, although Pompey was still in arms, and would not receive them again into his service until they had not only made repeated and humble entreaties, but until the ringleaders in the mutiny were punished. When the soldiers of the Tenth Legion at Rome demanded their discharge and rewards for their service, with violent threats and no small danger to the city, although the war was then raging in Africa, he did not hesitate, contrary to the advice of his friends, to meet the legion and disband it. But addressing them by the title of Quirites instead of soldiers, he by this single word so thoroughly brought them round and changed their determination that they immediately cried out they were his soldiers, and followed him to Africa, although he had refused their service. He nevertheless punished the most mutinous among them with the loss of a third of their share in the plunder and the land destined for them. In the service of his clients, while yet a young man, he evinced great zeal and fidelity. He defended the cause of a noble youth, Masintha, against King Hiemsal, so strenuously that in a scuffle which took place upon the occasion he seized by the beard the son of King Juba, and upon Masintha's being declared tributary to Hiemsal, while the friends of the adverse party were violently carrying him off, he immediately rescued him by force, 
kept him concealed in his house a long time, and when, at the expiration of his praetorship, he went to Spain, he took him away in his litter, in the midst of his lictors bearing the fasces, and others who had come to attend and take leave of him. He always treated his friends with such kindness and good nature, that when Gaius Oppius, in travelling with him through a forest, was suddenly taken ill, he resigned to him the only place there was to shelter them at night, and lay upon the ground in the open air. When he had placed himself at the head of affairs, he advanced some of his faithful adherents, though of mean extraction, to the highest offices. And when he was censured for this partiality, he openly said, Had I been assisted by robbers and cutthroats in the defence of my honour, I should have made them the same recompense. The resentment he entertained against any one was never so implacable that he did not very willingly renounce it when opportunity offered. Although Gaius Memmius had published some extremely virulent speeches against him, and he had answered him with equal acrimony, yet he afterwards assisted him with his vote and interest when he stood candidate for the consulship. When Gaius Calvus, after publishing some scandalous epigrams upon him, endeavoured to effect a reconciliation by the intercession of friends, he wrote to him of his own accord the first letter. And when Valerius Catullus, who had, as he himself observed, fixed such a stain upon his character in his verses upon Mamara as never could be obliterated, begged his pardon, he invited him to supper the same day, and continued to take up his lodging with his father occasionally, as he had been accustomed to do. His temper was also naturally averse to severity in retaliation. After he had captured the pirates by whom he had been taken, having sworn that he would crucify them, he did so, indeed, but he first ordered their throats to be cut. He could never bear the thought of doing any harm to Cornelius Fagitas, who had dogged him in the night when he was sick and a fugitive, with the design of carrying him to Scylla, and from whose hands he had escaped with some difficulty by giving him a bribe. Philemon, his amanuensis, who had promised his enemies to poison him, he put to death without torture. When he was summoned as a witness against Publius Clodius, his wife Pompeia's gallant, who was prosecuted for the profanation of religious ceremonies, he declared he knew nothing of the affair, although his mother Aurelia and his sister Julia gave the court an exact and full account of the circumstances. And being asked why then he had divorced his wife, because, he said, my family should not only be free from guilt, but even from the suspicion of it. Both in his administration and his conduct towards the vanquished party in the civil war, he showed a wonderful moderation and clemency. For while Pompey declared that he would consider those as enemies who did not take arms in defence of the Republic, he desired it to be understood 
that he should regard those who remained neuter as his friends. With regard to all those to whom he had, on Pompey's recommendation, given any command in the army, he left them at perfect liberty to go over to him if they pleased. When some proposals were made at Illyria for a surrender, which gave rise to a free communication between the two camps, and Aphranius and Petrius, upon a sudden change of resolution, had put to the sword all Caesar's men who were found in the camp, he scorned to imitate the base treachery which they had practised against himself. On the field of Pharsalia he called out to the soldiers to spare their fellow-citizens, and afterwards gave permission to every man in his army to save an enemy. None of them, so far as appears, lost their lives but in battle, excepting only Aphranius, Faustus, and young Lucius Caesar, and it is thought that even they were put to death without his consent. Aphranius and Faustus had borne arms against him after obtaining their pardon, and Lucius Caesar had not only in the most cruel manner destroyed with fire and sword his freedmen and slaves, but cut to pieces the wild beasts which he had prepared for the entertainment of the people. And finally, a little before his death, he permitted all whom he had not before pardoned to return into Italy and to bear offices both civil and military. He even replaced the statues of Scylla and Pompey, which had been thrown down by the populace. And after this, whatever was devised or uttered, he chose rather to check than to punish it. Accordingly, having detected certain conspiracies and nocturnal assemblies, he went no farther than to intimate by a proclamation that he knew of them and as to those who indulged themselves in the liberty of reflecting severely upon him, he only warned them in a public speech not to persist in their offence. He bore with great moderation a virulent libel written against him by Aulus Cicinna, and the abusive lampoons of Pithalaeus most highly reflecting on his reputation. His other words and actions, however, so far outweigh all his good qualities that it is thought he abused his power and was justly cut off. For he not only obtained excessive honours, such as the consulship every year, the dictatorship for life and the censorship, but also the title of emperor and the surname of father of his country, besides having his statue amongst the kings, and a lofty couch in the theatre. He even suffered some honours to be decreed to him which were unbefitting the most exalted of mankind, such as a gilded chair of state in the senate-house and on his tribunal, a consecrated chariot, and banners in the Circensian procession, temples, altars, statues among the gods, a bed of state in the temples, a priest, and a college of priests dedicated to himself like those of Pan, and that one of the months should be called by his name. There were indeed no honours which he did not either assume himself or grant to others at his will and pleasure. 
In his third and fourth consulship, he used only the title of the office, being content with the power of dictator, which was conferred upon him with the consulship. And in both years he substituted other consuls in his room during the three last months, so that in the intervals he held no assemblies of the people for the election of magistrates, excepting only tribunes and aediles of the people, and appointed officers under the name of prefects instead of the praetors to administer the affairs of the city during his absence. The office of consul having become vacant by the sudden death of one of the consuls the day before the calends of January, the 1st of January, he conferred it on a person who requested it of him for a few hours. Assuming the same license, and regardless of the customs of his country, he appointed magistrates to hold their offices for terms of years. He granted the insignia of the consular dignity to ten persons of praetorian rank. He admitted into the senate some men who had been made free of the city, and even natives of Gaul who were semi-barbarians. He likewise appointed to the management of the mint and the public revenue of the state some servants of his own household, and entrusted the command of three legions, which he left at Alexandria, to an old catamite of his, the son of his freedman Rufinus. He was guilty of the same extravagance in the language he publicly used, as Titus Ampius informs us, according to whom he said, The Republic is nothing but a name, without substance or reality. Scylla was an ignorant fellow to abdicate the dictatorship. Men ought to consider what is becoming when they talk with me, and look upon what I say as a law. To such a pitch of arrogance did he proceed, that when a soothsayer announced to him the unfavourable omen that the entrails of a victim offered for sacrifice were without a heart, he said, the entrails will be more favourable when I please, and it ought not to be regarded as a prodigy that a beast should be found wanting a heart. But what brought upon him the greatest odium, and was thought an unpardonable insult, was his receiving the whole body of the conscript fathers sitting before the temple of Venus Genetrix, when they waited upon him with a number of decrees conferring on him the highest dignities. Some say that on his attempting to rise he was held down by Cornelius Balbus, others that he did not attempt to rise at all, but frowned on Gaius Trebatius, who suggested to him that he should stand up to receive the Senate. This behaviour appeared the more intolerable in him, because when one of the tribunes of the people, Pontius Aquila, would not rise up to him as he passed by the tribune's seat during his triumph, he was so much offended that he cried out, Well then, you tribune, Aquila, oust me from the government. And for some days afterwards he never promised a favour to any person without this proviso, If Pontus Aquila will give me leave. To this extraordinary mark of contempt for the Senate, he added another affront still more outrageous. For when, after the sacred rites of the Latin festival, 
he was returning home amidst the immoderate and unusual acclamations of the people, a man in the crowd put a laurel crown encircled with a white fillet on one of his statues, upon which the tribunes of the people Epidius Morullus and Cisetius Flavus ordered the fillet to be removed from the crown and the man to be taken to prison. Caesar, being much concerned either that the idea of royalty had been suggested to so little purpose, or, as was said, that he was thus deprived of the merit of refusing it, reprimanded the tribunes very severely and dismissed them from their office. From that day forward he was never able to wipe off the scandal of affecting the name of king, although he replied to the populace when they saluted him by that title, I am Caesar, and no king. And at the feast of the Lupercalia, when the consul Antony placed a crown upon his head in the rostra several times, he as often put it away, and sent it to the capital for Jupiter the best and the greatest. A report was very current, that he had a design of withdrawing to Alexandria or Ilium, whither he proposed to transfer the imperial power, to drain Italy by new levies, and to leave the government of the city to be administered by his friends. To this report it was added that in the next meeting of the Senate, Lucius Cotter, one of the fifteen, would make a motion that as there was in the Sibylline books a prophecy that the Parthians would never be subdued but by a king, Caesar should have that title conferred upon him. End of Julius Caesar, Part 4 Recording by Graham Redmond